Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that hopefully satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Glad to have you. This week on the show, we are talking about a number of things, as I like to do with smart people, is get into their brain about their life, what they've built, how they've built it. We are talking to Soon Yu. Soon is an international speaker and author on innovation and design. He most recently served as the global vice president of innovation and an officer at VF Corporation. If you don't know who VF is, they're one of the largest, if not the largest, clothing apparel company, and they include North Face, Vans, Timberland, Nautica, Wrangler, the list goes on. He's also been a founder and CEO for numerous venture-backed startups, and was recognized as Northern California finalist for the prestigious Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Prior to all this, he worked at Bain & Company, Clorox, and Chiquita Brands. He won a lot of awards. Oh, and he lectures at Stanford University, where he also received his MBA. There are his credentials. He's on smart people. So what are we talking to soon about? Well, primarily we're talking about his new book, which is called Iconic Advantage. Don't Chase the New innovate the old. And at the end of the episode, I'd say the last 15 minutes when we jump into this, soon explains how this book is different, how this book is quote unquote iconic, how he has innovated on the old and it's not just same old, same old. 
But Soon has a really interesting background. He wasn't born in the United States. He talks about that briefly. And then also what it was like to start a new company, to fail immensely. You hear some vulnerability come out, which is always great to hear. And he just gives some down-to-earth advice for anyone from the entrepreneur and solopreneur and artist all the way up to the manager, leader, and executives. So without further ado, I'm going to let you hear about how to embrace the iconic advantage as we talk to soon you. Before I get into it, remember, we are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. And more importantly, our email is smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. We've been getting a couple of emails in the past few weeks, and I really enjoy getting them, especially from those that love the show and give us some feedback. What we are doing is compiling a list of our super listeners, the people that really enjoy this, who have made it part of their week or their habit. And we're going to talk to you, whether that be via email or if you're so kind to hop on the phone or on Skype. We want to know what makes you tick. Why do you listen? How can we get better? And we want to iterate. We want to be the iconic podcast. So again, email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com if you dig the show and only good things will come. There it is. And here it is. Another episode of Smart People Podcast. Soon you. Hope you enjoy. Well, soon. First, I just want to say thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, I'm excited to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And you know, having you on, it's one of my favorite things when a previous guest of ours, Dave Burse, reached out and said, Chris, I got a guy, right? I got a guy. You got to have him on. And I respect Dave so much. Our listeners love Dave. Um, of course, I did my homework first, but I said, yep, soon it definitely meets the category of smart people. So uh, so I was really happy to have you on. Well, thank you. I'll take any borrowed equity from Dave I can. So <laughs> I, I'm glad I'm in his company and uh, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, look here, let's start here. I know we're going to talk about your brand new book, Iconic Advantage. We're going to talk about writing a book and how this came together, uh, your experience, and then basically creating a brand and, and how you innovate your old. And, and I know you have some things there, but let's start with who are you? Where'd you come from? What do you do? Well, you know, that's a great question. I was actually born in Taiwan and I grew up there for a little while and then I moved to the U.S. and had a little bit of culture shock, but eventually acclimated into uh, becoming an uh, all-American kid that was a little shorter and scrawnier than most, but uh, somehow managed to always be the last person picked on the uh, you know lunchtime basketball uh, pickup <laughs> games, and so <laughs> somehow that's always shaped me in terms of like uh, you know not giving up and always wanting to maybe uh, um, try things that are a little out of my uh, scope and uh, out of my ability. But yeah, and and, and um, you know it's it's been this amazing journey where. Uh, I'll start in high school where I was had the sort of the left and right brain. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have sort of these these two sides to them, and they kind of figure out which side they want to go to. And I, I struggled with that in high school. I was trying to decide whether I was going to be a fashion designer or an engineer. And huh. uh, yeah, yeah. And, and so um, there was a creative side of me that really liked the fashion design part, but then there was this analytical side that really liked theory and frameworks and analysis. 
And uh, let's just say I came from a very strict Asian family, mm. and they weren't going to pay for fashion school. So <laughs> I, I, it's funny thing is I ended up going into engineering school, and I've spent most of my life kind of go back to the uh, emotional branding fashion world. And, and so the rest of my life from high school has sort of been this really long journey to try to go back to what my instincts told me I should have probably done when I was in high school. And, and you know, I, I'm actually glad that happened because along the way, I kind of figured out how to marry kind of the right and the left of the brain and the heart and the head and, and also marry uh, sort of being bicultural and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I'm a product of a lot of mashups. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and along the way, uh, lots of failure. Oh, my God, Chris, just tons of failure i mean i've had i've had four or five times where i've been outright fired from a job and because i was either incompetent or just i didn't you know fit the culture or whatnot um i've had many businesses that i started dissolved tons and and unfortunately i've had to do many rounds of layoffs with people that i loved and i cared about who kind of uh, joined me on this crazy vision that we all had and 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 obviously through that, lots of um, new ideas that failed and a lot of new products that failed. Probably the worst thing that ever happened to me is um, I uh, have the distinct honor of having uh, the lowest uh, credit score you can get. I've had uh, 300 as a credit score, and wow. that's the base. Yeah, yeah. Impressive. <laughs> why isn't that? Why isn't that on your Wikipedia bio? <laughs> okay, I'll make a change right now. Please do. Please do. <laughs> Uh, and Chris, I've had it twice. So wow. It's not, yeah, 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 yeah. So your listeners, uh, yeah, yeah, you can just tell your significant other spouse or your friend <laughs> that you've, you've just listened to the biggest loser on radio or whatever <laughs> podcast that you've ever heard. Well, you're being humble because you were the global VP of innovation at VF Corp, which for those that don't know, I actually know VF Corp really well. I consult for them. We don't need to talk about that. But um, <laughs> the North Face, Vans, Timberland, Nautica, Wrangler, all of that. You've founded uh, and run numerous startups. You've written this book. You worked at Bain and Company, which we all know is an incredible place. Your MBA from Stanford. I mean, let's not downplay it too much here soon. It, okay, well, that that there's fair. There's there's things uh, that well, you know, I applied to Stanford three times, and the third time that I actually finally got into Stanford. Wait, and, what'd uh, you do? I, what'd you do after the first two times? Like go to a different school? No. So the first time was as an undergrad, and I remember my mom reading my application. She goes, you're not getting in. I go, why? Because you spelled English with a lowercase e. I go, oh, is it supposed to be an uppercase? <laughs> so that, just, that just shows you as an undergrad. I, I, well, actually, as a high school student, my English skills are really bad. I'd never thought I'd ever end up being a, a writer, by the way. Hmm. And um, so, yeah, I, I, the first time I applied as an undergrad, didn't get in. I even remember, uh, I still think, I, I believe I still have the rejection letter. And then the second time I applied as a as a newly minted undergrad trying to get into the business school, I didn't get in then. And finally, the third time was a charm, and, and I got in then. But yeah, hmm. I, I had to endure uh, two very thin letters from Stanford. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but no, but but you know, I, I mean, I, I've had a lot of failures, but I've also um, persevered and tried uh, sometimes a second or a third round on many things. Uh, like one of the startups I, I started was called Gazuntite, and it was a retail concept focused on selling products to people that had allergies and asthma. And you know, these are everything from. Uh, health and beauty aids that were hypoallergenic to bedding and sheets that were hypoallergenic to obviously hard goods like air purifiers and humidifiers, whole range of um, products. And um, that uh, 
venture went through, I want to say, yeah, three different iterations. Uh, we we started it. It went majorly. It was majorly successful. Then it went bankrupt in a big epic way. And then from there, we bought it back out of bankruptcy. Then it struggled again. And then um, we finally were able was able to sell it to one of the companies that I'd worked with previously, uh, Clorox, the bleach company. And so mm. yeah, it was like a lot of um, ups and downs in terms of uh, everything I've done. And uh, so, um, and and actually, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I was always curious why were some people really good at this innovation stuff and mm. at commercializing new ideas and marketing and and scaling you know uh, new things to the world and. Uh, that's when it hit me after I did all this research that um, it's because these companies actually look at what they're already good at and take all their shiny new ideas and apply it against the old, against their strengths, against where they already have market momentum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know that's a theme throughout. I really want to get into that. But in your intro already, I have seven things I wrote down that I want to talk about. <laughs> so I, I think we're in trouble here. I see episode two on the way. But how old were you when you started your first real company? And when I say real, I mean like not a t-shirt business out of the back of your car. Sure. If sure. that were a thing. If that were a thing, yes. <laughs> no, um, I, I think the the very first company I started was actually Gazoontite. And I remember I was at Clorox at the time. I was a brand manager or customer marketing manager. I can't remember what I was doing there. I was doing something with the marketing and sales, obviously. And I came up with this idea, and this was back in, I want to say, 97. And so I was probably at that time, 97, you know, doing the math. I was 32, was it? I was 30, okay. 97. Yeah, yeah, I guess I was about 32. And the funny thing is, in it was like 96. So I was about 31. And, and I actually quit Clorox. And because it's a retail concept, and the reason I thought it had to be retail is a lot of these products were nascent. They weren't really, you know, uh. Uh, very developed. And, you know, if they were developed products, it would have been a little easier to sell online back then. Mm-hmm. But because they were so new to the world, I figured people needed an experiential, educational learning process to understand what the products were and then how they applied to benefit them in their lives. Sure. And so retail was sort of an obvious choice. I didn't know anything about retail. In fact, uh, here's another story. I applied to Baskin Robbins, to McDonald's, to a whole bunch of places when I was in high school, and no one ever took me. I don't know why. I just <laughs> can't figure out why no one ever gave me a, a, a simple retail job. So I actually quit Clorox and went and worked at Crate and Barrel for a full year and made $5 an hour. It was, uh, I, I think, um, one of the reporters actually told my story, did the calculation, and he said, you took an 85% pay cut. I go, oh, I guess that's right. <laughs> wow. And you did that yeah. just to learn retail. I did that to learn retail because I didn't know, I didn't know diddly about retail. And, oh, my God, I found, I found out that retail was so much harder than any white-collar job I've ever done in my life. For sure. Oh, oh yeah. I think oh. anyone who's ever done that will will agree with you on that. What I'm curious about is this idea of taking an idea to market, which is an entire topic and an entire podcast. But explain how this 30-something-year-old, which a million people out there right now, myself included, are, that, you know, have an idea in an industry that they might not really know. Um, they don't have a lot of money, but it's a good idea and they've got some skill, some experience. How do you take that to a company that's big enough to then get bought by Clorox? Like In a nutshell, how does that even work? Take us back to that first step. Sure. I, I think the first thing that you want to do is just write the idea down on a piece of paper, literally. I mean, you know, I mean, it's always in your head, right? And get it out of your head because uh, you, you'll be surprised once you have it on paper, 
a um, couple things happen. One, you like uh, you build on it. You go, oh, this part's exciting. Um, you'll also kind of call BS on yourself. Like, oh, now on paper that really does sound kind of dorky. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then the other thing that's really important is uh, you start sharing it and with other folks, and then it starts becoming real when other folks start giving you feedback. And the way you know it's not just sort of a paper idea in your head is when other folks start going, hmm, you have something here. Let me build on it. So they give you some just suggestions, and obviously they tell you where you're kind of blind and where you, you know start to – but you iterate it. And then people start getting excited about the idea, and guess what? They say, hey, you know, you should talk to A, B, and C. Then the, the minute somebody says you should talk to this other person or go look at this or do some research there, that means you're on to something because they see the potential in it too, and you've just enrolled your vision with some cool people that probably will help you along the way, if not in terms of financial support, at a minimum, more importantly, moral support. And by doing that, I'm surprised how many people have these great ideas, but they never take the time to just write it on one piece of paper. Okay. Mm. And in fact, I think people think, oh, I have to write this 20-page you know, business proposal, therefore, then it's real. No, they just write one page. In fact, I always say it's harder to write it in one page than it is 20 pages. But, you know, it's that whole Mark Twain uh, quote where – Yeah, if I had more time, I would have written less. Yes, I would. Have, sorry, I wrote such a long letter. I ran out of time. Right? Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so if you get in one page and people can understand it and they gravitate towards it, you probably got something, right? And then um, as you work with other people and you continue to build the idea with other people's input – and by the way, you have to be open to the idea of building it with other people's input – it starts taking a life of its own. So that sort of to me was kind of the first step. Hmm. Um, now, it, it, I'll say this. Um, it does take perseverance because while I was working at Crate and Barrel for a year, I was, you know, obviously taking the one pager and trying to flesh it out into a much more deeper business proposal that was 20 pages. Um, I would also try to reach out to the network of anyone that would listen to me. And I remember every morning before I went to work, and usually, you know, work started around 10 or 10:30, so I had a good two hours there. Um, I would be on the phone making calls, and I remember distinctly having uh, a list of sometimes 40 or 50 people that I'd want to call every morning, and obviously it'd change every week. And I'd call and leave a, you know, first message. Sometimes a week later I'd leave a second message, and eventually as a third message, I knew I probably didn't have any hope. But you know, you know, a month later I'd leave a third message, just checking in, right? And I would say 90 plus percent of my calls were never returned. Um, and so part of my job was to continue to refresh that list and continue to make those calls. And eventually, you know, it, it's it's a name of no, it's a game of numbers. Eventually some folks return your calls and they you know, they get bought into the idea and it's, people are busy. It's not that your idea sucks or that you don't have any merit or you're no good. It's just, you know, everyone's busy, right? And 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 so um, but yeah, it took those two things, a bit of perseverance and a bit of just sort of making it concrete by actually putting it on paper and then starting to work with your networking people that you know and friends and family to just kind of continue to build that. So the the people you called, so for those, you know, because I think putting it down on paper is a great first step. It's a hard one because then it becomes real, but it's something we all have control over, right? But I can hear, and maybe it's my own inner chatter, I can hear this idea of, yeah, but who do I talk to? I don't know. Will they care? How are they going to help me? Are they going to take my idea? All these things. How did you deal with that chatter? 
Well, okay, so I've never been somebody that was really good at going to a bar and just, you know, um, dealing with rejection and trying to find your soulmate, right? That, just, that was horrible. <laughs> I found this even more difficult. <laughs> I just have to be honest with your listeners. But it was a, a sort of a series of trial and errors. First, you know, you start with your friends and family and say, hey, do you know anybody that's – so you mentioned it's in this space. Do you know anybody that knows anything about retail? Oh, okay. Do you mind if I call them? And then you, you hopefully a couple of them return your call out of 10 calls, maybe two or three return your call, and then you talk to them and you say – and you never ask for money, nor do you ask for um, – not at least initially. You ask for – Oh, so what do you think of the idea? Uh, and and is, is there anyone else you think I could talk to to make the idea stronger or better or that could potentially give me advice on the idea? Hmm. And and through that process, you will land and find people that have access to funds or access to uh, means, so to speak, or access to other people that can get things done for you. Um, so, you know. Um, I was not your typical VC um, candidate because I was doing retail back then. Internet was so hot, and this just didn't, you know, smell of anything that had high multiples. Sure. <laughs> so um, it was a much more traditional kind of calling and, and trying to get people. But I was trying to raise some funds to at least see capital. And you know, it's funny. Here I am with the Stanford MBA working. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest with the listeners. I, I had a BMW, but I, I parked it at the farthest part of the parking lot in the underground so that nobody at Crate and Barrel knew I was driving a nice car. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and, and it's funny. It's such a weird life. I was living in a nice place in a nice neighborhood with a nice car, but making very little money and very little cash flow. And every night I'd go home and I'd eat uh, Costco frozen chicken breast with rice. And ah, so- yes, yes. <laughs> but anyway, to get back to the, the, the idea that, yeah, I mean, you just call people and um, you, if you're passionate about your idea, people love to listen to people that are passionate about things. And, and um, you know, not everybody, but I, I think most people will be willing to at least listen and then usually give you, you know, a reference or two or some uh, or some additional ideas. And that's kind of the process I took for a full year before I actually landed on, you know, the, actually the hardest critic I had was my family. It's my dad. He sure. was like, you know, I paid for this. You know, he helped pay, he helped pay for my college education, and he's like, "What are you doing with this? You know, you're wasting this investment I made against oh, this, right?" Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We've all heard. We've all definitely heard that one. What I'm wondering then, this is great, by the way, because that makes sense. So, say you get your idea pretty clear, and in your case, especially back then, it was a lot harder. But right now, if you want to do it, you could go on Alibaba. You could probably buy some of these things. You could put it on the internet. I know you wanted to do retail, but but what is the first step to actually doing, you know, from idea to product to a real business? In my mind, that's the hardest part. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I have really good friends at IDEO and they talk about this idea of uh, evaluating desirability, then evaluating the idea of feasibility and then the idea of viability. And desirability is actually whatever it is you're doing. Is there somebody that would want it? And then, you know, you think about feasibility. Can you actually produce what they want or make it or, or deliver it? And then the last one is, it, will it make any money? You know, and, and those are the sequence of questions you ask. But so the first thing you want to sort of tackle is, is there a there there in terms of a need? Uh, are you servicing something that somebody would want, whether it would be a product or a new service or whatever it might be? And, you know, obviously putting in a concept on paper and testing it with potential uh, your potential consumers, that's a good way. But yes, to your point. You know, uh, and I didn't know this when I was in the 30s, and design thinking wasn't such a big thing back then. But you can prototype ideas so simply, you know, and and the rougher the prototypes, oftentimes the better in terms of both getting 
feedback on what the strength of the idea, but probably just as importantly, letting you know what the warts are, the blind spots are, and then continually sort of refining and getting higher and higher resolutions of so-called the prototype. And yeah, I mean, there's just simple ways now, especially with all the tools available. You know, you you can build a dummy app with PowerPoint. You know, where yeah. you can just show, you know, show people and simulate it on your, your phone and you can do that for $10, right? It's just a bunch of PowerPoint uh, slides and that's it. And, and so if you're building an app, that would be really easy. If you're building something more physical, just, you know, cardboard and tape and, you know, a little Crayola and you, you should be, you know, good to go. And, and, and so th- there are ways to start getting some feedback before you um, – what I would consider a pretty heavy financial investment. Right. But, but – yeah. Well, and I think that's the tough part, too, is that financial piece. But I don't want to make the entire episode about this because I have so many different things. One is this idea of failure, which we hear a lot from entrepreneurs and, and business owners and things. So to make this real, though, what would you consider was your greatest failure business wise that sticks with you and made you who you are, basically proving your perseverance? Yeah, I think that's a really that's a really good question. I don't think I've ever had to answer that, but I know the answer to it. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So it's kind of feeling raw to be sharing it, but ah, you know, that's okay. It, that's okay, right? <laughs> Here, here's one of the biggest learnings that I think the failures, and I would say there's a pattern of the failure. And when I look back at my most epic failures they were usually preceded by a period of hubris, a period of what I call self-arrogance. And um, yeah, I, I would mm. say, you know, where I, I got ahead of myself and I got my head head got a little bigger than it really should have. And so that's a watch out for me now, whatever I do, that I remind myself both, you know, um, you know, who's helped me and remind myself why I'm doing it. It's not just for me. There's a much bigger reason to do this. Um, and I have to continually tell myself that because when I look back, let's just say it, one of my biggest failures was um, at Gesundheit, you know, I assembled a, a fantastic team of very smart people who were who shared the vision. And, you know, back then in the dot-com days in San Francisco, um, there was just so much um, money being thrown around. And I got both greedy, but I also got big-headed And that, you know, I started to work on other startups while I was doing this startup. And all of a sudden, I, I was distracted and I wasn't giving my full attention nor my full energy or passion uh, towards the startup that I had. And and um, and I and I thought raising money was so easy, and I thought the skills I had to raise money or to do whatever I was doing was, you know, I just took them for granted, and and I forgot the idea of work ethic, and and yeah, and, and so I let myself down, but more importantly, I let the team down, and uh, yeah, and I would say that you know, okay, granted, we had um, the prevailing wind was pretty. It was all about like, you know, um, land grab, right? You want to spend sure. to get revenue and you spend like $5 to get $1 and you're all happy, right? Right. So in some ways, I, I don't know if we would have been able to um, um, overcome the fact that we were in a bad business model environment where everyone was just playing out greedy, okay? Sure. Um, but I accelerated it by, by, by my, and by everything that I had done. And probably more than anything, I um, – 
had a lot of relationships that I damaged because I wasn't fully vested and I didn't give my all like they were giving. And, mm-hmm. and, then, and so, yeah, that's, that's a big watch out for me as I do anything nowadays is that, uh, you know, not to get ahead of myself and not to get a big head. But yeah. And well, and I appreciate probably, that. Oh, go ahead. I was just, no, it's probably the biggest learning and biggest and the most painful thing I, I, I've, I've had to sort of yeah do. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And that's a great lesson because even, I I was helping run a nonprofit a few years ago and, you know, we started to have people working with us and for us and getting to that point where you're now in charge of other people's paychecks is is something that you can't quite understand the pressure until you're in that place. It's mm-hmm. it's probably, in my opinion, I would estimate the least glorious part of owning slash running a company. You know, I can imagine that being the toughest part, as you mentioned, all those smart people. And while we're talking about this, people you work with, right? You said you had to hire them, you had to go find them. You've also talked about uh, talking with friends, family, and others about your idea. Clearly, one of the things that I think you probably do really well is connect with others to bring your ideas to life. I want to pick your brain on this topic because I hear often, you know, hey, I could really use help on this. How do I find a co-founder? How do I get somebody else to help me with this vision? And so I would love to hear from you on how you do that, what you've learned in your business dealings. And then also, many people might not know, but you actually co-wrote this book with Dave Burst. That's how we got connected. So I'd also love to hear how you sought him out and, and recommendations for how others can find somebody who will bring their idea to life. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. It's not an easy question to answer. Um, I mean, I could give you the canned speech. Oh, you got to find somebody with shared values. You got to find, you know, all that. Right, right. That's all true, right? <laughs> but let's face it, we're like all black boxes of of emotions, of context in terms of you know how we grew up and and how we interpret the same pieces of information differently, and and then we all are sort of a a a um, a routine of behaviors that have been sort of ingrained in us since we were kids or, or at least in the last few years. And when you marry that up and you put two, two people like that together, sometimes it works, sometimes it w- doesn't work. And here's what I'll also say. Sometimes it works for a while. And sometimes later on, you know, you grow differently and it doesn't work. And in good analogies, you know, look at marriage, you look at, you know, dating, you look at it's, 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 it's work. And, um, and, and so, I guess the piece of advice I would say is this, ease into it. (laughs) (laughs) And so like Dave and I actually started out where initially I was just looking for somebody to help me with the book, to write some of the cases, maybe to help uh, do the writing and I would do the frameworks and I would do, you know, a lot of the content. And, and it was really a relationship where I was hiring him, Mm -hmm. but the more we work and then, and then what was nice about that is it was my way to understand who he is and and what and obviously there was some initial stuff in terms of evaluating his work obviously talking to him looking to, with him in the face um and, and and you know there was some initial what i would call chemistry in terms of um um us working together and also a shared vision in terms of you know what i was trying to accomplish and was he bought on to that and our and a little clearer in terms of role definition begin in the very beginning you know i was hiring him mm-hmm. but as we worked more and more together i found that he'd come back and he'd have something where i hadn't even thought about it or he would add so much richness and flavor to it that i was like 
wow, I, I, I mean, this made it 10 times better. Um, it wasn't just his writing that was so amazing. It was more his ideas. And, and then obviously I'd go back and I said, we need to, you know, I love the Mark Twain thing. Like, okay, you've written 40 pages. I've turned them into three, you know? And right. so we would have this back and forth and he had a total respect for that too. Um, and at the end I was, you know, I said, Dave, you know, originally he wasn't even going to be on the book and you have to be on the book because of your contributions. I would feel really bad if you weren't on the book because of all the contributions you put in. And um, so that relationship developed. And now going forward, I would be honored to be on a cover with Dave and to have uh, a project with him. And I fully endorse him in terms of, you know, especially since he's in the UK and I'm in the US, you know, if there's clients and needs in the, in Europe or, or in that part of the world, I automatically send them to Dave. And I even, I try to pull them out to uh, this side of the pond, so to speak, as much as I can too, just because we were able to ease our way into that. Mm-hmm. The, the other element in terms of finding somebody to work with, I think this is part where I think we may have blinders on, is having a uh, an honest self-assessment of what you're good at, what you're not good at, what your pet peeves are, and what you do that actually annoys people. <laughs> mm. And I, I think sometimes we think it's all the other person's fault and why it didn't work. I think sometimes you have to realize that we contribute 50% to whatever relationship is developed. And until we have a real honest assessment of our, not just our strengths and weaknesses, but our personality quirks and um, how those interact with other people's personality quirks and their, you know, their, their, and who they are. You will always um, lie to yourself and say, well, it was that person's fault. And versus like saying, you know, I own this and I have to apologize or I own it. I don't think I can change that about me. So in the future, I'm just going to have to be honest about who I'm working with. I'm going to be this way. And if that is too annoying for them, then they probably shouldn't work with me. Sure. But until you have what I call an honest discussion with yourself about you, you're going to basically have problems finding a good partner. Wow, that's really good. So let's sum that up. It's be honest with your strengths, weaknesses, and faults. It is, of course, the the stuff that matters, but we didn't necessarily need to cover. Find somebody with the same values. And then start slow. Start slow, build that relationship just like any other, and see how it progresses before going all in. Yeah. yeah. All right. I mean, it's not mind-bending or mind-blowing, but it it is exactly what I've trialed and erred into. And even today, even today I was talking to somebody who I was excited to work with and we're going to walk our way into it and see what happens. And we were, and then we ended the conversation talking about, well, I tend to be more like this. And so if you saw me doing this, it's because I'm like that. I go, Oh yeah, I I get that. And I'm like this too. And so, and, and it was good to actually have that type of conversation even early. So with the remaining 13 minutes we have, I I really want to get into your book and the book is iconic advantage don't chase the new, innovate the old. So first, let's start here. Just tell us what the main premise is, and then we'll dive in. Well, the main premise is that there are some companies out there that are really good at commercializing new ideas, and they make like multiples of profit versus others. And they're the standard bearers for what they do and what they're known for in the categories, the segments, the niches that they compete in. And I was really curious to understand, did they luck into that? Or was there a deliberate strategy with actual proven principles and best practices to do that, to actually reach a level where 
you have iconic status for your brand, product, or service? And obviously, the answer is the latter. <laughs> we would have written the book, right? Um, and, and so the whole book is focused on how iconic brands became iconic and, more importantly, how they've stayed and remained iconic. And then reverse engineering what the principles and best practices they pursued in order to both create that iconic status and remain and enhance their iconic status. And that's what the whole book is about. And the reason we say innovate the old, one of the big ahas wasn't was there's two kind of ahas. One was that it wasn't luck. There was actually a deliberate strategy. And then number two, that that strategy was really simply put, uh, focused on um, building iconicity and more importantly, taking a lot of this shiny new ideas and shiny new um, you know objects and whatever, but applying it against where they already had market momentum, where they already had strength, where they actually already had um, iconicity. And so, um, yeah, that that's really kind of the ahas in the book, and that's what the book is really squarely focused on. And and and, it, and I don't know, if, you know, I don't know how much you've read of it, but we, we try to give it in a simple framework that people can actually apply, whether they are obviously a Fortune 500 company, but probably more importantly, whether they're a pizza parlor in Portrero Hill or even uh, for their personal branding uh, in their career journey. Well, actually, I'm glad you said that because that was my next question. And I've never asked this, but I've thought it a number of times. I don't know why I haven't. You know, when you write a book about iconic companies, so we're talking the Nikes and the BMWs and the Apples, how do you plan on selling books when such a small percentage of people that need to know about how Apple became Apple, which is just too far out of their reach to the everyday person, whether it be an entrepreneur, solopreneur, artist, or just individual how does this translate? Sure. I mean, when we look at these great – and let's just define what iconic means. Iconic is, is something where you're recognized for something distinctive that's highly relevant to people. And through um, longevity of being recognized for that distinctive rec- uh, relevance, you actually become the standard bearer for that distinction um, in the category niche or segment that you're competing in. And so when we – the first thing we wanted to answer and this you – know, think about how this applies to you on a personal level – is what makes a brand, a service, a company, a person iconic. And there were three qualities that we identified when we looked at almost 50 companies. And, and, and not just companies, but we also looked at celebrities. We looked at you know pizza parlors, whatever it might be. And it was these three qualities. The first is there is something distinctive about iconic property, something that makes them stand out versus the competition, something that is really differentiated and noticeable and memorable. That's quality number one. Quality number two is that whatever this distinction is, they're not just different for different sake. Whatever that distinction is, it's highly relevant to the audience they want to become iconic to. And the key here is it's not just relevant today or yesterday. It's the idea that will be relevant yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's the ability to create timeless distinction. Okay, So that's quality number two. It's actually whatever uh, you are distinctive for, it's timelessly relevant. Okay, And the third is whoever you want to be iconic to. You know, For Coke, it's the entire globe. Mm-hmm. But for the pizza parlor in San Francisco, they only wanted to be iconic in Petraro Hill, okay, which is a region or neighborhood in San Francisco. Uh, and, and if it's on you on a personal level, maybe it's just to your company or to your department or maybe just to your team. Um, they're recognized 
for that distinctive relevance. And if you can become distinctive and relevant and then recognize for that distinctive relevance and you do it with enough time, you will become the standard bearer for that. And if you become the standard bearer, that leads to iconicity. So let's take a person, for example. Let's say you were going to go into the field of AI and there's just a thousand billion people working on AI. Okay, great. Okay. And so you wanted to become iconic for AI. Oh, that's a big challenge because, again, you have to rise above all these other billion people that are focused in the field of AI. But let's just say you wanted to marry this idea of being a subject matter expertise with something that you – you're a big cat lover. You, know, you just love cats and you have – 10 cats in your home and you know you're the cat guy or cat lady by the time you're you retire you're gonna have you know <laughs> they're gonna follow you everywhere and you said look i am going to be the expert on artificial intelligence for cats well okay now and i'm only going to work for pet owners and for the food uh, pet food companies and what i'm really trying to figure out is you know how that my understanding of artificial intelligence for cats can actually benefit this small universe of people and then maybe even for cat bloggers or whatever and and the people that you know whatever and that's how you build your iconicities because you have something that's distinctive that's highly relevant to the few audiences I was talking about not to the entire world and 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 so you then continually the goal then is how do you stay continuously relevant is that you continually invest behind being as smart as you can on that, um, you know, interviewing and learning from more and more people around that topic, and obviously adding in stories and things that you, 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 you uh, um, thought about uh, around that topic. And, and so that is how it can work on a very personal level. Awesome. Well, and I want to ask you as this idea of kind of differentiating and even niching down, if you will, is the main message here in this book. How do you feel you've applied that to this book? And what I mean by that is obviously people have heard similar ideas of how do you create a brand that stick or how do you find the, the one thing that you can be best in the world at? How do you think you brought that strategy, how did you differentiate this book from what probably was in your mind as there's a lot of competition? Yeah. So when we looked at the world, uh, you know, and I, and I did exactly what I talked about earlier. I wrote a bunch of one pagers on a bunch of ideas I had for potential books and to figure out one, was it relevant? And two, was it something that it wasn't, you know, it, it was distinctive and this rose to the top. Surprisingly, there are very few books that have written about what makes iconic brands iconic. And when we search the popular press out there, there's a lot of branding books. There's a lot of books that say, let's go from good to great, or, mm -hmm. you know, let's, let's, you know, find the purple cow and, and they're great books. Okay. And there are a lot of books about, you know, how do you think about your brand DNA and what's your archetype? And, uh, there's a lot of marketing books in terms of like how to build your brand in terms of advertising. But there was very few that thought to the, how do you actually reach the pinnacle of branding, which is reaching iconic status. And when we read everything out there, there was an underlying assumption that a lot of people lucked into this or just happened over time. And if you were one of the smart people, as long as you were really diligent about managing your brand using all the available best practices out there and you were able to somehow keep it relevant for the next you know, 50 years, that it was by sheer hard work and luck that you became iconic. And 
when we had that aha moment that no, this is actually a very deliberate strategy, and there actually there are actually principles and best practices to actually do this, but they've never been shared. That was the aha for us to say mm. this is what makes it really distinctive, and so we have gone to your point. The first book, and you know, as I said, the first book, right, <laughs> is really focused on yeah, probably a little deeper dive into big brands, okay, but. This idea of iconicity applies on so many different levels, and, and therefore, to keep it relevant, we probably have to write about some other verticals where iconicity could apply. Hint, mm. hint, hint. Maybe yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. And, you know, I, I, I'm glad we touched on that because it's not just this idea of, like, find your niche, make it small enough where you can succeed and all that, but it's also once you're there, how do you rise to the level you want to be at and then stay there? And, oh, by the way, we're going to show you how a number of brands have done it. Awesome. Very, very um, tangible and I think applicable to everyone. Like I mentioned, even the artist, the painter, the the muralist, the pizza owner. Well, soon it's been great. I know you have to run. The book is Iconic Advantage. Don't chase the new, innovate the old. I just wanted to pause for a second and see, you know, where are you out there on the interwebs? Are you, do you write blog? Are you heads down on this? Where can we find you? Sure. Um, you can reach Dave and I at iconicadvantage.com. So that's pretty easy to find. And obviously you can find us, the book on Amazon or in your Barnes and Noble store. And we will link to it at Smart People Podcast. Well, soon I'm going to get you out of here two minutes early. So go catch oh. that, you know, go get in your car and catch that meeting. And thanks so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure and uh, really enjoy your questions. And I, I think uh, if I was your audience, I'd be fascinated with how you're building your iconic brand, which I love. By the way, I love the graphics on your uh, on your website, and I also love your guests and what you ask about. And so continue to build that iconic brand, man. I appreciate that. You know, I might reach out to you for some help as we try and continue to grow. Just hey, if, you're that Dave's, if you're a friend of Dave's, that means you're probably going to get it for free because Dave's the biggest, hardest guy, biggest hearted guy I've ever known. I love <laughs> it. I love it. All right. Well, soon. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Take care. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Soon Yu. Soon's book, Iconic Advantage, Don't Chase the New, Innovate the Old, can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And by now, you should know the drill, but if you don't, if you decide to purchase through Amazon, please make sure to do so through the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make going through the link comes at no extra cost to you, and it greatly helps support the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, you can head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. As always, don't forget to head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com where you can check out all of the old episodes and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up, so make sure you stay tuned and we will see you all next episode.